Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. When natural disasters strike, they can impact just about every aspect of life. The ultimate cost of such disasters is actually a science of its own, and no one is more familiar with those costs than those charged with ensuring all that is important to us. Today, we'll talk with Steve Bowen, Director of Meteorology at Aon, to look back at the weather-related disasters of 2018. Plus, fascinating conversation that will explain how Mr. Bowen utilizes analytics to help communicate and prepare the world for the risk associated with a future that promises to bring more and more extreme weather. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and Steve, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. And we were just talking beforehand about your role there at Aon, which I think used to be branded as Aon Benfield, but you're now Aon. Tell us a little bit about who you are, Steve, and what you do. Sure. So my my background is in meteorology. I, I got my bachelor's in meteorology from Florida State University. Um, Go Knowles. Uh, yes. And, and after that time, I, I went back uh, to school and... Uh, I got my my master's in, in uh, uh, business analytics from the University of Notre Dame, which may not elicit uh, similar excitement, uh, Dr. <laughs> Shepard. Uh, but um, uh, I actually, coming out of uh, Florida State, I, I initially started in, in television. Uh, I worked uh, uh, in Tallahassee while while I was in school, and then and then I was uh, hired uh, into in, Tampa afterwards. So I was there for the 2004 2005 uh, hurricane seasons. Uh, and then uh, after a couple of years in television, I, I decided to, to shift gears a bit. Um, I'm originally from, from the Midwest, and I had always uh, looked to, to get back towards to Chicago, and I uh, found an opportunity to work for, for Aon here in Chicago. So I've been here now for, for almost 12 years. And uh, uh, my current role, I, I head the Catastrophe Insight team, uh, which does a lot of real-time and historical natural disaster analysis uh, trying to help clients uh, identify, uh, you know, weather trends, climate trends, uh, any type of natural peril trends to help our clients get a better understanding of the risks that they may face. And a lot of that has to do with from a financial component, uh, not just uh, the insured loss, but also the overall economic toll, uh, you know, which are very important uh, pieces of the puzzle when you're trying to you know, help people uh, get a better understanding as, as to what is happening. Because obviously the science is very important, but uh, when you're talking about this to, to the everyday layman, you know, I like to use a term called Fisher pricing the science or Fisher pricing certain aspects. <laughs> I of, love it. Of, of information basically to, to make it easily digestible for everybody. Uh, and so a big part of my role is, 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 is you know, doing the analysis from, from a higher level uh, scientific point of view. 
uh, but also uh, turning around and explaining it to our clients because, as we know, you know, the people that are at the most risk, you know, they oftentimes don't realize it. So you have to be very clear and precise in uh, what, what the risks they're facing. So if you do uh, face disaster, that they're not completely caught off guard. Yes. And uh, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about the 2018 mega weather disasters. That's really the, the topic of this podcast today. But I, I really want to linger here for just a moment because I think you're working in an area uh, where perhaps many people that go into weather or meteorology may not think about. And, and it sounds like this was not something perhaps on your radar screen, pun intended, uh, when you were a student of meteorology at our, our, at our mutual alma mater. No, and and to be honest, I was completely surprised when uh, you know I was I was doing some some role searching, you know, ten, eleven, twelve years ago, and you know, and, and I saw insurance, and I you know sort of scratched my head at, at first, but then when you start looking into it, it, it makes complete sense, just because, you know, from an insurance point of view, there's just so much uh, of what insurance deals with happens to be with weather and, and natural peril, so you know, it really is a natural fit, and and what we're seeing, um, you know, not just with insurance, but in the private sector, is a a much more important role for for not just meteorologists but but science and, uh, scientists in general, uh, hydrologists, geologists, seismologists, uh, wind engineers, uh, you know all types of different engineers are being, being hired by energy groups. They're being hired by even sports teams hire meteorologists. You know just to you know ensure that uh, everyone has a, a good understanding as, as to what's what's going on. And I, I think that you know is uh, you know from from a data perspective, we continue to see data availability become much more robust and it's it's much, uh, uh, you know, the, the quality is much better. I think that, you know, we're trying to, to turn to people that, that can interpret what some of this data means uh, and make some, some better decisions. Yeah, and it just sort of illustrates how weather literally touches almost as, every aspect of our daily lives, from transportation to the gross domestic product to insurance to the food we eat, et cetera. And so I, I think it's, this is a, a, a good time to think about the 2018 disasters. But before I go there, the one more question, what, what process do you use to access or assess uh, damage potential prior to a, a Florence or a Hurricane Michael or a wildfire? Is there, is there some process in your industry that you go through? Uh, well, there, there's a lot of different things. I mean, uh, we could probably go on it for hours if we really wanted to get uh, deep into the weeds. But um, <laughs> give us the uh, Fisher Price version. <laughs> yeah, the Fisher Price version. So, I mean, uh, in, in Aon, one of the, the main tools that we use is called catastrophe modeling, uh, which is essentially is different types of computer simulations uh, for different uh, uh, d- disaster types. Um, and, and you can take an insurance portfolio and you can run different types of uh, scenarios, either, either a, you know, a historical event that has happened or what we call a stochastic event, um, which is essentially a hypothetical scenario, and run it through these models and it comes out with an output. It, it, you can get an event footprint, um, you know, where the wind, wind speeds may be uh, highest. You could get a, a flood, inland flood component or a storm surge component. And when you overlay uh, insurance portfolios, then you get a better understanding as to you know, where the highest risk could be and where the highest loss could be. And then we take that information and we can turn around and, and hand that over to insurance companies who are our clients or brokers. And then they have a better understanding to be able to communicate uh, in turn to their clients uh, to have a better understanding of the types of risks they face with the different types of scenarios that we may model. Yes. So, yeah, there, there's clearly a process here, and it, it really all circles back to the weather, which is where I want to transition now. Um, 2018, uh, 
Give me your thoughts before we talk about the specific events. Give me your overarching thoughts on 2018 from a weather disasters perspective. How would you sort of summarize 2018 relative to recent years or perhaps even past years? You know, if you asked me this question six months ago, I would have said, you know, this is looking like it's going to be a pretty boring year. Um, I mean, it, the, the year started off pretty benign, but once we hit uh, the third quarter, things just really started to ramp up. Um, you know, and not just the U.S. I mean, typically on an insurance side, the U.S. Uh, tends to dominate the, the losses is because the, the insurance market in the U.S. is, uh, you know, very, very mature. Um, and so there's much more of a presence here than, say, uh, Asia Pacific or, or Latin America where the, the uh, you know, the... Uh, these emerging markets, the uh, insurance industry has, has yet to make a you know a, a full uh, you know play there yet. Um, but uh, you know, 2018 has been very active not just for the U.S. but also for areas like Japan, uh, which has seen you know numerous uh, very strong uh, typhoon events and, and flooding events, which which has been very costly for the industry there. So, you know, I would say on a whole, coming out of 2017, um, you know, 2018 was, was not not quite as, as, as hectic as, as last year was, but, uh, you know, 2018 is definitely going to go down as one of the more expensive years from a financial point of view uh, from a lot of these disasters. And and let's, let's use that opportunity to now talk about some of the specific disasters that we saw. Let's start with Hurricane Florence, because I think that's around that time frame where things started ramping up from perhaps what seemed to be a boring uh, year, relatively speaking. Uh, clearly, clearly, there's certainly things going on throughout the year that impact people. But I, I, I get your point about boring from the standpoint of not being a mega anomaly year. But certainly things started to change with Hurricane Florence. Florence. Uh, well, actually, there, if I can interject yeah, really quickly about that, because I think there's an interesting point in all this. So just how the perception has, has changed. So uh, this year has, has really been considered a down year for U.S. severe convective storm for thunderstorm uh, events. Um, yes. But the total aggregate losses are still in excess of $10 billion, even on the insurance side. $10 billion so, with a B is what you said. I want to make sure the listeners heard that, not million, billion. Correct. Yes. $10 billion. And, and this is primarily driven by hail. And, you know, I think most of the time, most people assume uh, costly years or active years just entirely based on the, the frequency of tornadoes, when in reality is that's what's really driving the cost tends to be hail uh, and, and severe uh, straight line winds. Um, and, and those pictures typically aren't as sexy as, you know, the storm chasers going out and seeing the, uh, you know, the, the tornadoes. Uh, but, but the reality is this was considered to be a down year, but this was actually the 11th consecutive year where we've seen SES losses in excess of $10 billion, um, which, is, which is really staggering because when we were back in 2008, 2009, when we, we first sort of hit that threshold, people were you know, uh, sort of freaking out because we, we hadn't seen losses at that at that level. But uh, they've they've maintained a consistent, you know, elevated uh, stretch over the, over the course of, of more than a decade now. So, you know, it, it's interesting just from a perception view how, you know, now it was considered a down year, even though the losses still were, uh, you know, fairly significant. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? And I can, by the way, attest to the whole hail impact that uh, my family was caught in a fairly significant hailstone here, a uh, hailstorm here in Georgia earlier in the year. Uh, um, I, I, we had golf ball to 
tennis ball size hailstones and there's a even a video floating around out there if you search on uh of me and my family in the car my wife videoing is these large hailstones are pounding our car dented our car uh, many homes within our subdivision had roof damage so we can certainly attest to exactly what you were just talking about the other point i, I would add to what you just said it it always is typically the non-telegenic somewhat boring aspects of extremes that often can be the most dangerous. I, I think about what kills people most in the U.S. each year weather-wise. It's, it's, it's heat, and it's not telegenic. It's not winds blowing around and hurricanes pounding into the coastlines, but it's deadly. So I, I, I can really resonate with the point you just made. I want to kind of shift now to Florence. What, what do you think was most unusual about Florence compared to other hurricanes from your perspective? Well, uh, you know, it, obviously it has to be the rainfall and the inland flood component. Um, and what was, you know, truly concerning about this when it, was, it echoed uh, Harvey from an insurance standpoint uh, is that there was such low f- national flood insurance program uh, policy take up uh, in, in the Carolinas, which, uh, you know, to, to bring it down, to simplify it a little bit, uh, essentially in your typical homeowner's policy, uh, flood is not covered. So you have to buy a separate policy through, through the federal government called the National Flood Insurance Program, NFIP. And um, you know, a lot of people, less than 1% in some of these inland counties in the Carolinas just did not have uh, policies in place. And, and because of that, that meant similar to Harvey last year, that a, a high portion of uh, the overall damage that was incurred was not actually covered by insurance because uh, those, uh, you know, take-up rates were, were so low. So, so to me, one of the big, big concerns, you know, again, not trying to compare Harvey and, and Florence, there were, there were different events uh, entirely, but just from the overall theme of the excessive rainfall and the overall impact uh, that was uh, about to occur, you know, it, it was definitely concerning, uh, you know, wondering just, just how much uh, of that protection gap was, was going to be exposed. And, you know, based on some of the initial uh, bits of data and information that we've gotten, it, it still looks like, uh, you know, less than a third of, of the overall cost is probably going to be covered uh, by insurance, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to sort of get out there for those listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Steve Bowen, a Director of Meteorology at Eon. And we're talking about Hurricane Florence, and I'm curious, in the world that you operate in, are you sensitive at all to how good or bad the track and intensity forecasting are, or does none of that essentially matter for the types of work you do? Oh, uh, on the contrary, it, it's it's huge. Um, you know, in our business, even one slight track deviation can be the difference in billions of dollars worth of damage. Um, I mean, I... I you know, I don't want to say famously, but I, I had tweeted out uh, something around Hurricane Matthew a couple of years ago where I, I called it the billion-dollar wobble because as Matthew was coming up, it was looked like it was headed towards the east coast of Florida, and it did this slight wobble back to the uh, to the northeast, uh, which kept the, the core of the storm offshore, you know, north of Miami, and, and that truly saved literally billions of dollars of the damage. So, you know, we, we are very, very, you know, laser-focused on, on the track and intensity just because we know that these little shifts can make a huge difference in hitting, you know, a max uh, uh, population exposure center versus a, a more uh, rural uh, uh, you know, area. So, you know, we're, we're very, very focused. And that's why things such as, you know, eyewall replacement cycles, you know, because we're talking about the expansion of the wind field and things like that, that plays a really big role on 
uh, what the potential impact is. So, um, you know, most people think insurers are just sort of, you know, waiting around and, and wanting to get in there after the event to, to process claims. But, uh, you know, part of that process of getting people put in place uh, post-event is, is, you know, studying the, the storm, the cycles, the intensities, and, and looking at all the different models to try to get a good sense as to where these uh, where these events may go. So, uh, yeah, it, it's all tied together. So, you know, those slight tracks can, can mean, mean the difference of, of many billions of dollars. Yeah, and, and, and as, as we saw, it, interestingly with Florence, people were really initially focused on, oh, this is a Cat 4 barreling towards North Carolina. And then it was um, uh, reduced to a Cat 2 level storm or so. And I think for some people, the guard was let down a little bit, but many of us, like you and I in this field, knew that the, the rain and the fact that this storm was going to stall was going to be the, the main problem. Yeah, and that and that goes back to a, a much larger problem that I wish you know you and I could sit here and solve that problem, but that's unfortunately probably not going to happen. But uh, you know, just trying to communicate the uncertainty and and you know everything that comes into it because I think there's still a you know unfortunately everyone looks at the you know the Saffir Simpson hurricane wind scale and they just assume okay you know it it, it was a four and now it's a two or a one and it, it means that my risk is going down but they don't see the full picture they don't they don't understand the uncertainty that if the storm slows down and it's tapping into a you know a really rich uh, you know pool of moisture that that we could be talking about you know substantial rainfall totals and inland flooding so you know, there's going to have to be something done. You know, it's going to take everybody essentially to sit down and, you know, try to come up with some type of communication, uh, you know, adaptability to be able to explain to people, to explain, you know, to tell them that, you know, the Saffir Simpson scale wind speed, you know, projection is just one small component to a much larger threat that, you know, tropical cyclones end up end up posing. Yeah. Well, Weather Geeks listeners, if uh, after you're finished with this podcast with Steve Bowen, uh, go back into the Weather Geeks archive, uh, wherever you listen to the podcast and check out the podcast I did with uh, former director of the National Hurricane Center, Rick Nab, because we talked about that very issue. And it's certainly one that's still uh, ever present as we move forward to a, and I want to use that as a transition to Hurricane Michael, which in some ways uh, was the more traditional hurricane threat that I think people think about. You've got a strong hurricane moving to a part of the country that hadn't seen a storm that strong. But interestingly enough, it didn't initially look to be that strong and went through what we call a rapid intensification cycle and ended up being a cat four-ish level, maybe weak cat five if it gets reclassified later storm. Uh, What made Michael so different or, or special or interesting from your perspective, Steve? Well, I, I did a post-event survey down there uh, about a month ago, and, and I'll say that the, the level of devastation there was, uh, you know, especially on the storm surge side, was, was uh, you know, heartbreaking and, and very intense. I, you know, in my line of work, I, I, I tend to do a lot of uh, post-event surveys, and, you know, Michael is one that, that certainly, uh, you know, is going to stick with me for a long time. But, you know, I, I think what was most concerning, you know, to a lot of us is that uh, the, the part of Florida that, that Michael hit, you know, it's, it's, you know, locally it's called the Forgotten Coast, uh, meaning that a lot of the, the, the homes and the construction that, that, that's there, you know, is, is of an older building type. And so a lot of these structures haven't been retrofitted to, to meet the, you know, the, the current building code standards that are in place. You know, and, and as we sat there and we watched, uh, you know, Michael undergoing this, you know, explosive rapid, rapid intensification, there was, you know, definitely uh, a lot of concern as, as to whether or not these these older structures were going to be able to, to withstand. And, uh, you know, doing the on-the-ground survey, I think that, you know, rightly most of the focus was 
you know, on Mexico Beach and, and some of the areas directly, uh, you know, around landfall in Tyndall Air Force Base. But uh, the, the scope of, of partial damage uh, in Panama City was really surprising. I mean, uh, I would say, you know, the, the, at least the majority of, of every building in Panama City or Panama City Beach had uh, some type of damage, uh, you know, from the wind and not, not just from a, a water perspective. So, uh, you know, Michael was, uh, you know, definitely surprising because, uh, you know, the initial forecast that came out from the NHC, it didn't show that that level of, of uh know, strengthening. Uh, so it caught a lot of us off guard. But I, I think, you know, for us in the insurance industry, we, we were even more concerned that it was hitting a, you know, a particularly vulnerable part of the state uh, in which building codes may not be quite as stringent as they are in the southern part of uh, Florida and, and the peninsula, uh, and especially with an older building stock where we know that, you know, there, there's some retirees, there's people that have uh, vacation homes there that, that may not have, you know, had their homes built to, uh, you know, the, the, the current code. Yeah, that was actually something that concerned me as well as someone that also spent time in that uh, that region. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Steve Bowen, Director of Meteorology at Aon, talking about the weather disasters of 2018, and we're still talking about Michael. One other really interesting aspect of Michael was the fact that it did end up being so strong, and because it was so strong and moving at a pretty good clip, it maintained its intensity well inland uh, in the parts of the panhandle of Florida, even parts of Georgia really destroyed much of the cotton, pecan, and and peanut crop there in Georgia. Um, Was that something that you expected, or and do you worry that we will see more of that type of inland maintenance of intensity? Uh, I'll be honest, uh, as shocked as I was at the damage along the coast near the landfall location, uh, we actually drove all the way into the southeast Georgia, southwest Georgia, excuse me, to do uh, the damage survey, you know, and, and we, we found that there was, uh, you know, there was that one uh, uh, site that had you know, 120 mile per hour wind gust, and we actually visited that location, and the damage that we saw there was, you know, absolutely, you know, matching that, that Cat 3 uh, type of wind uh, damage that you would expect, and that was really shocking. The fact that the, the storm maintained its intensity so uh, far inland was, uh, you know, really surprising, and, and you know, I'm almost left speechless. I don't know what to say just because yeah. it's, it's not—it's not something that you typically, you know, expect. A, you know, a hurricane to maintain that that level of, of strength that far inland, especially that far amount of time. Um, so no, I, I you know I don't have a good answer for that, but it, it's something that you know it catches us off guard. And I think that's you know one of the important points about the weather, you know, especially for me, is that the weather continues to humble me. You know, I, I always feel like I have a, a pretty good grasp on on how things uh, go. Obviously, I don't know everything, you know, no one does, but, you know, there, there are still some events that, that surprise me and, and, you know, force me to kind of go back and relook at the literature, um, you know, just trying to figure out what, what actually happened. I, I know that you've done some, some great work on things like the, the brown ocean effect, you know, inland, may, maybe it was, you know, feeding off of, 
you know, wet soils or something like that that, that kind of kept it going that far inland. But, uh, you know, I'm still kind of at a loss as to what, you know, kept its intensity that far uh, far inland. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, we thought a little bit about perhaps whether it was a brown ocean case. I don't, I don't think this one was. Interestingly enough, in that part of the of Georgia, there are a lot of irrigation, uh, center pivot irrigation, which can provide moisture, but it really wasn't the peak of the irrigation season. So it's one that's sort of baffling to us as well. Uh, but I, I know I went down to the Florida, Florida State College football game a couple of weeks ago, and I was just stunned as I drove down from Albany to Tallahassee just looking at all the pecan trees down. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, and that's one component of, of these big catastrophe events that often gets overlooked, and that's the ag- agricultural you know, component. And you know, we're talking uh, expected ag losses from Michael, you know, approaching five billion dollars, and that also includes you know impacts to forestry. Um, you know, and, and the time of year that, that Michael hit, you know, they were getting ready to, you know, harvest, uh, you know, peak season, and they, the, all that stuff, uh, you know, was 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 highly exposed and at risk, and. Um, you know, it, it took a beating. It's going to take a while, especially for the pecan, cre- pecan trees to, to grow back. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Now, let's let's shift over to the West Coast because they've had their own record in destructive uh, weather and weather-related events as well with the wildfires. I mean, we, we had destructive wildfires, the campfire, and fires down near Southern California as well. Um, what was it about these fires that made them so destructive? Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say right off the bat that, you know, the last two years of wildfire damage that we've seen in California has, has essentially been off the charts. I mean, from, from a loss perspective, um, you know, it, it, it's really been uh, striking as, as to how much uh, devastation that has occurred. Um, what's been particularly, you know, uh, heartbreaking to see uh, is that we, we've had a major conflagration that essentially wiped out an entire city. And, and that's not something that, you know, we would typically expect to occur in, you know, the 21st century and, you know, our ability to you know forecast and try to get a better sense as to you know what might happen but you know I don't think anybody uh, you know would have assumed that a, a fairly you know noteworthy city would would have uh, almost burned to the ground so you know that was very very shocking but I also think that it that it opens the door for a much you know more important uh, conversation and dialogue that needs to happen uh, about people that, that are unfortunately moving into some of these known fire locations that are you know have, have long been identified as areas of risk for for, for fire um, and the fact that these fires are still occurring and then when you add the climate change component and you know the the, the evolution of extreme weather and you know the fire behavior and things like that and the, the expansion of the the season um, you know, it, it's quite concerning that there's just way more people in these areas that, uh, you know, tend to be at risk. And so the, the big question is, you know, what, what do we do going forward from a mitigation perspective? Um, and a lot of that, you know, is going to start with, with simple education. But, you know, there's, there's probably going to have to be some, some tough decisions on, on, on what we're going to do to ensure that, uh, you know, we don't continue to have this, these types of losses in the future. Yeah, and I was going to actually ask you about that because I, I wrote something in Forbes about this sort of urban wildland interface, which is a, a, what I believe the terminology is called, at yep. least the U.S. Forest Service, in this notion that there are more people and buildings and things and places where it used to burn. And frankly, some of the burning in the natural ecosystems is required sort of for maintenance of the ecosystem. But now there's suppression of those natural burning cycles because people and houses and things are there now and we, we, we don't want to put those at risk. So it, it really is an interesting uh, sort of dilemma that we find ourselves in, right? 
Yeah, you know, and and what was unique about uh, you know Paradise is that it, it wasn't even it wasn't the interface; it was the intermix, which is a diff- slightly different terminology. The interface is sort of the the immediate divide between areas we expect to burn and, and areas that, that that typically aren't expected to burn. But the intermix means uh, areas that are sort of embedded within you know a much uh, more forested area, and that's unfortunately where where, where Paradise was. Um, so it was even more, you know, vulnerable, uh, you know, to, to fire. But um, you know, the, the the fire suppression issue is is a is a hot button topic, as as we know, just from you know some of the conversation that's been going on in the public space. Uh, but you know, the, something is 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 likely going to have to to evolve, and a lot of that comes down to the funding and budgeting, and you know, firefighters. You know, being exhausted. I think if if you talk to a lot of the firefighters and you read some of the the accounts, is that uh, you know a lot of these guys are just exhausted. They're they're fighting these these massive fires almost on a year round basis now, and it's you know it's really changing the the perception, the view as to how uh, you know we we actually handle and uh, you know tolerate these these types of events. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Steve Bowen. Uh, Director of Meteorology at Aon, and we're talking, we're taking a look back at the 2018 uh, season of weather and the weather disasters. We've talked about Hurricane Michael, we've talked about the wildfires in Florence, and you know, one of the things that you said there in the last segment, uh, particularly as it relates to the California wildfires, you seem to suggest that the wildfire season is year-round. Is this yeah. indicative of a sign of, and I don't even like to say a sign of things to come, because I, I think we're we're there. I, I think we're just going to continue this and perhaps accelerate it. But is this a sign of things to come because of a shifting climate? I mean, the wildfires is a really challenge. I mean, I served on a National Academy study that looked at this concept of attribution. Can we attribute current events, weather, disasters, and events to a climate change signal? And some things are a bit more clear cut in that study than others. Things like heat waves, extreme rainfall, wildfires was a challenge because though there are certainly some things that are linked to weather and climate, there are other things that you just talked about that are also at play. So what are your thoughts on this? Is it a sign of things to come or to continue? Well, you know, it, you, you can't look and say, you know, two years is, you know, defining a trend. I mean, that's that's a bit too tough to say from a loss perspective, but from, from the overall risk perspective, you know, I think that it's, you know, given some of the points that I made previously about the continued growth of, uh, you know, exposure uh, into areas that are particularly prone to fires, but, you know, when, when we're talking about uh, the, the climate change influence, you know, the, the changes in extreme weather variability, you know, wildfire is challenging because if you do have a year like we had a couple of years ago, which we had, uh, you know, uh, very high levels of precipitation, you know, the water year was, was near record levels, uh, and that allowed for, you know, fairly significant vegetative growth. Uh, and what's concerning, and this is where the climate change component comes in, if you're seeing these these very massive and quick shifts from, you know, heavy precipitation to extreme drought, you know, from, from a wildfire, pers- wildfire perspective, uh, you know, when all that, that brand new vegetation dries out and dies, it basically sits there and it acts as, uh, you know, abundant fuel uh, that's, that's waiting to, to go up in flames. So, you know, it's, it's really concerning when you have these, these really extreme shifts that that just, you know, really complicates, uh, you know, how, how you're going to deal with it in terms of cleanup and just, you know, doing the, the fire suppression and the controlled burns. Um, you know, it really does add another level of complexity to an already pretty challenging, uh, you know, topic. Yeah, and I, I think this is right, but it just points also to the complexity geophysically in terms of the science, but also the societal sort of interfaces and interactions as well. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're talking about billion-dollar disasters, weather disasters that we've seen in 2018. Many people may be surprised to find that there's a snowstorm listed on that this year. Uh, how does a winter storm become a billion-dollar disaster? Yeah, so that was uh, we we had a couple of, of pretty large nor'easters back in uh, you know the first quarter of the year, January, February, March, and uh, you know winter storms are are definitely unique. You know they. Uh, you know, they, they can certainly snarl traffic, you know, travel, you know, the airports, as everyone knows, you, you get one delay in, in O'Hare or, or, or New York and everything, the whole country shuts down. Uh, but you, you can get, uh, you know, quite a bit of damage from winter storms, from uh, excessive accumulation of, of snow on roofs. You know, you combine that with ice and, and that can cause, you know, a roof collapse. Um, you know, most of the damage, you know, from a physical damage perspective actually comes from uh, fallen tree branches and trees on, onto cars uh, and homes and businesses, you know, broken windows. Um, you know, that it may not be total, total devastation that you would see from, say, a tornado or from a hurricane. Uh, but if you have a lot of different properties um, that have been damaged, you know, partially, all those little, you know, uh, payouts and things, that all adds up fairly quickly. So uh, that's that's where you typically will, will see, uh, you know, uh, uh, claims and, and damage uh, adding up pretty quickly. And then also you have the automobile component. You get a lot of traffic accidents. And that's why, you know, in, in many cases you, you tend to see, you know, so many road closures just because, you know, highway patrol men are, are very concerned about, you know, black ice and things on the roads that, that may lead to, you know, even greater uh, risk on, on the roadway. So uh, there's a lot of different factors. It's not as cut and dry as, as some of the other, uh, you know, other perils, but, uh, you know, you can definitely get uh, some, some pretty expensive events. Yeah, no, I'm curious, are there, I mean, you talked about snowstorms and certainly I, I understand what you said there. Are there any other types of cold weather um, related events that, end up sort of impacting sort of insurance or insurance claims or, or, or whatnot, or is it really just the big storms? Well, it's the big storms, but then, you know, a couple of years ago when, you know, the polar vortex was sort of the, the, the term the of the day. The buzzword of the day, and it's not an Arctic hurricane. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, when you get these prolonged cold snaps, and that's when you have to focus on things such as, uh, you know, pipes freezing and bursting, and then you get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically water damage inside the home just because the pipes are bursting. So, you know, you can get these these after after event effects. It's typically after nor'easters. That's when it's pulling down. You know, the the tremendous uh, you know pool of cold air. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people just assume, okay, well, the the storm is done. You know, my my risk of of, of possible possible impact uh, goes away, and that's not true. If you get a really extended period of uh, of time with uh, very cold temperatures, you know, if you're not, you know, having the water drip, I know that's sort of an old wives tale, but that, it really does, you know, work and it plays a big role just to, you know, to, to ensure that the, the pipes aren't actually freezing. Um, but, but that, that can definitely add up very quickly. You, you can get, uh, you know, uh, losses adding up to, to more than a billion if you get a really widespread uh, event that, uh, you know, areas that may not necessarily be as, as accustomed to some of these cold snaps that, uh, you know, other places might be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Steve Bowen. 
you mentioned we've been fairly U.S. centric in our billion dollar disaster discussion as it relates to weather. But you mentioned earlier that there have been some global disasters of note, too. Talk about those. Yeah, and what what stands out to me the most has to be Japan. They they've had uh, you know multiple uh, billion dollar events. In fact, uh, you know Typhoon Jebby is, is looking like from an economic perspective, it's going to be a, at least a ten billion dollar uh, event. It's it's actually for the insurance uh, com- insurance industry over there. It's going to be one of the most uh, expensive. Uh, natural or, or typhoon events ever recorded, uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, they had Typhoon Trammy, which which also is is a multi billion dollar uh, event, and that doesn't even include uh, the floods they had uh, in July, which which were also another multi billion dollar event. So, uh, Japan has has been very very active uh, this year from uh, from a typhoon standpoint, and some of that that question is whether or not you know with the you know pending transition to El Nino and just some of the you know the, the the shifts and tracks that you that you do see with those different types of ENSO phase. You know that that may you know contribute to some of the clustering that that went on this year. But but Japan has definitely had a, a pretty tough year. Talk about yeah. You mentioned El Nino, and it looks as though we're shifting into an El Nino pattern, or perhaps in the earlier phases of it, perhaps intensifying even more by early 2019. Uh, how does how do you consider these sort of climate variability forcings like El Nino or the Arctic Oscillation? And, and what you think about in your job? You know, it's really interesting. I think it, it, it's probably more, you know, intriguing for, for me as a scientist as opposed to, you know, the, the broker that sits next to me. Um, but, you know, what we can do with that information is at least, you know, turn around and explain and say, okay, this is what we've seen in, in historical, and uh, you know, El Nino years. This is what we've seen in La Nina years. Because there tend to be shifts. You know, some areas will see, you know, more in the way of, of flood damage. Some areas will see greater um, uh, drought risk, you know, that's, that's really important from, from the agricultural side of things. Uh, but then also, you know, like I mentioned with, with the, you know, the, the, the typhoon tracks, you know, just, just knowing that, you know, with certain setups that occur with these different types of oscillations that, uh, you know, you may want to shift your, some of your focus, uh, you know, slightly to some of these areas. So, you know, you're not guaranteeing that something may happen, but, you know, looking at, looking at the past, you know, ends up telling a pretty good story for the future. So, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to identify, you know, exactly where, where things may be, but you can at least provide some overall, you know, overhead guidance, uh, you know, to give people a heads up as to as to what might actually occur. Yeah, great point. And I, I think I want to now transition the, the last segment of the podcast to how you utilize the data and how you communicate. Um, how can you take your work to help communicate and prepare for future disasters? I mean, I mean, I, I know you're assessing and you're thinking about insurance implications and cost implications, but uh, can you go beyond that in terms of what you do to help communicate and prepare for future risk? Yeah, it's all about putting things into context. And I think, you know, a lot of times these big events happen, you know, and, and on social media, as, as, as you know, especially, you know, every event people seem to think is the worst event that's ever happened. And I think that, you know, when you have a robust data set and you know, have a lot of background information, you can help provide some context and you can, you know, have a data driven sort of perspective of things as, as to what, what's actually going on. And so uh, when we have this, this, this level of information, we can turn around and we can explain it to our clients. We can, you know, I work with, with folks in the government to, to, to help them kind of understand you know, everything that's going on, because we're all, you know, it's all a give and take, you know, there's some things that we do well in the private sector, and there's things that the government does exceptionally well. So it's all a matter of working together and trying to, excuse me, uh, come up with a, 
you know, a, a working platform to, to be able to communicate, you know, the risk. So, you know, what we do with, with, with the loss data is, is again, you know, we, we take into account the, the increase in exposures in some areas. Then we also look at, you know, some of the available, say, FEMA flood maps or some of the different types of uh, mapping available that, that highlights uh, risk in some of these areas. Uh, and when you put all that together, you know, you're, you're telling a much clearer story. So when you, when you go to the residents or if you go speak, uh, you know, to a city council, you, know, you have all this information. You can tell them, OK, here's where we used to be. Here's where we are today. And if we see the, the current trends continue, this is what we could see uh, again in the future. And, you know, when you're talking about resiliency and climate resiliency and, uh, you know, mitigation tactics, you know, all of these things are really important components. Now, you said trends. You, you So you are confirming based on your work and what you see that we are seeing increasing trends. And the reason I ask this is there are some out there that say, well, these billion-dollar numbers and the increasing costs that we're seeing, it's because there's more stuff that costs more in the pathway or, or being destroyed by many of these weather events. And there's some truth to that. But from your perspective, do you see an increasing trend in the extreme weather events themselves? Yeah, and it's it's funny you mention that because it, it, there really is a there's three essentially three different types of data that that, that people you know that have available to them. So you have the, the nominal cost, which means the the losses that actually occurred at the time of occurrence, and then you have the inflation adjusted numbers, which is essentially taking the loss from when it occurred and then you're uh, using inflation adjustment to to today's dollars. And then there's this normalization. Uh, uh, you know, a data set, uh, which is floating around, which is also very important, but that's essentially a hypothetical. So that's not losses that have actually occurred. That's essentially taking the loss, the nominal loss, and then trying to uh, incorporate today's uh, current exposure and, and try to essentially guesstimate what the, the hypothetical loss could be if certain scenarios uh, occurred today. So if you're looking at it purely from a uh, uh, historical loss perspective and inflation adjustment numbers, I mean, it's been very very, very noticeable that the trend is obvious that the losses are are definitely going up and that's and that's the data set that you see from NOAA you know with the billion dollar uh, events data set that they have there uh, that's all based on the actual loss that occurred and trending it to today's dollars and there's a very very discernible trend yeah. so where things do start to to adjust is when you start to normalize and you're trying to essentially take these you know historical events say the 1900 you know Galveston uh, hurricane for instance and, and you're trying to you know guesstimate what that loss would be today if that same scenario occurred. Um, so it's really tough. It, it, it's a great data point. It's great to be able to have that data set and, and try to determine, you know, are we truly seeing uh, shifts in, uh, you know, increased uh, damage costs or decreased damage costs if, if we sort of replicated these, these historical events to today? And, you know, right now there's not a statistically significant, you know, indicator that, that, that shows that, that losses are actually going up. But when you're looking purely at the actual losses that have occurred, uh, they absolutely are going up. I mean, the number of, of billion-dollar events that are occurring in real time, you know, continue to go up in frequency. Uh, and, and given, you know, the, the, the continued increase in exposure and, and stuff just costs more today, you know, we expect to see more of that in the future. So it, it's sort of a, you know, a long-winded answer. I apologize for that. But, you know, there's, there's just a lot of different ways of looking at it. And I think that, that some folks just, just want to, you know, get in their corner and, 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 you know, grab onto something that fits their own sort of narrative. Uh, but it's a bit more, uh, you know, complex than that. Well, you know, I, you know I, I, we certainly know that those narratives and misinformation and agendas are out there. But 
folks like you that sort of think about bottom lines and money and risk and costs have been have been thinking about and acknowledging the science and the data for for some time. And so I think uh, anyone that's paying attention should be aware of that because people like you and the reinsurance industry and others have been thinking about these issues for a while. I, I, I think I want to end the podcast with one sort of positive note here. What are some simple steps that those listening can do to better prepare themselves or their families for these unexpected or perhaps predicted weather disasters? Sure. So the best thing to do is prepare. You know, from an insurance point of view, you want to know what your policy covers. You want to know all the things that you own because when you're a day or two away from a big event that may be occurring, things are just way too hectic. You know, you're trying to, you know, find an escape route. You're trying to ensure everyone's safety and and get out of the house. And you may forget a thing or two. And and if you come back and your home has unfortunately been been affected, you know, you may not necessarily be able to account for everything, you know, that, that you may have had. So, you know, have a plan in place. You know, take pictures of your stuff, you know, take stock of, of the things that, uh, you know, are most important to you, most valuable. So, you know, if you do unfortunately have have the worst case uh, happen, you'll be able to have some, you know, documentation and you can hand over and, you know, make make things a, a bit easier in, in, the, in the recovery process. So, you know, it's the same thing with everything. It, it, it's about preparation. It's about, uh, you know, ensuring, you know, you know what to do and, and you know, when, when things are most uh, complicated and challenging and, you know, kind of crazy, you know, if you have a, a pre-plan put in place, then that'll make things uh, certainly much easier. I think that's excellent advice. And I've enjoyed talking with Steve Bowen, Director of Meteorology at Aon. Steve, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me.